Thank you for joining Americans for Democratic Actions podcast, Lighting the Darkness. I'm Don Kustler, ADA National Director. Prepare to light the flame. Welcome to Americans for Democratic Actions uh, podcast, Lighting the Darkness, uh, joined today by ADA Iowa organizer and state director, Chris Schwartz. Uh, Chris has been with us for a number of years, all-star. He's also an elected official in Iowa. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, fireside chats, uh, some informative discussions that Chris has been leading uh, via his uh, Iowa chapter and Facebook Live on a range of issues. Chris, welcome. Thank you, John. It's it's a pleasure to be with you uh, here today, and it's exciting to be a part of this new uh, digital format for ADA. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. So you have uh, led, and it's been popular with our uh, online crowd, I believe seven of these fireside chats. We are going to make these available as part of the podcast, the audio, and are starting to do that now. But folks can tune into these on Facebook and get the video versions by going either to the ADA Iowa Facebook page or the ADA Facebook page. Uh, So I hope that you'll do that on Sunday evenings at 8 Eastern. Um, Well, let's start with some updates of some of the issues uh, that you have covered in these fireside chats. Uh, I believe you kicked it off on March 22nd with paid sick leave. Can you give us an uh, that, update? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, Don. Uh, when we thought of you know starting this format, it was in response to need to organize in a new environment because uh, of the COVID-19 uh, global health pandemic. And one of the issues that that really surfaced uh, to the top right away was something that ADA has cared about for a long time, and that is. Uh, the need to guarantee paid sick leave in this country. Uh, this is something that ADA has fought on in, in many states, both at the state, federal, and also local level. Um, something we worked on here in Iowa uh, locally and tried to you know, pass, attempt to pass uh, local paid sick leave ordinances before the, the state government, um, which has been under Republican control for a number of years now, uh, put up roadblocks and pass legislation preventing um, local government from doing that type of thing. And so there's, there's a bill out there. Um, and, uh, Murray, I believe it is, um, has the, the, the family act. And what this would do would be uh, guarantee uh, seven paid sick days to every American and an additional um, 14 days of paid uh, family and, and medical leave uh, to deal with more serious illnesses. And so there's been some components of this that have come into law as part of the COVID-19 relief packages, Uh, but those uh, components have have sunset clauses as as well as um, a number of exemptions, particularly for for large employers. And so it's just scratching the surface of what we need to see done uh, to guarantee that if you're sick, uh, you can stay home from work, and there's not a not an economic uh, disincentive from from you doing so. Right. You know, other thing I think I think about here too is, 
obviously we're trying to handle you know the situation the, the pandemic and it's still on the rise in most places uh and you know some of these remedies like you said uh, paid sick leave expansion and so forth are helpful but there's still problems with them this is going to be a big part of getting back to anywhere sort of normal over the next couple of years is going back and getting this policy right at the multiple different levels. So we're going to keep track of that. And Chris is going to keep us up to date on what we can do to be active. Uh, let's move on to the second topic. So I believe it was of March 29th. Uh, we talked about an ADA favorite topic, uh, even if we wish that it was not an issue. Uh, but uh, raising base wages, uh, raising the minimum wage. Yes, this this has been something um, ADA has fought on for decades and definitely throughout my tenure with the organization. Um, when I came on staff in 20, uh, or 2006, um, the federal minimum wage was 5.15 an hour. And ADA was, was housing the National Coalition uh, to work on raising the wage. And so I was just one of uh, scores of field organizers across the country uh, working with our Working Families Win Project uh, to try and raise the minimum wage. And we got it done here in Iowa. Uh, finally got it done, raised to um, $7.25 an hour in 2007. Uh, but that's where it's been stuck here in Iowa ever since that time. And so, uh, again, this is one of those issues we tried to do locally here and got preempted by that same bill here in Iowa that prevents local governments from uh, enacting paid sick leave as well as uh, raising wages. Uh, and so we here in Iowa have, have had a minimum wage stuck at $7.25 an hour uh, for nearly 13 years. And, and so we, we are supportive of, of what we call the, the Raise the Wage Act, um, which would, would raise the, the federal, minimum wage, federal minimum wage, would raise immediately to $8.55 an hour uh, but then over the course of five years, by 2024, uh, uh, this would uh, go up to $15 an hour. Uh, and a couple other important things it does is that this would um, phase out uh, the tipped workers uh, minimum wage, right. which has been stuck at 213 an hour since 1991, as well as uh, sunset uh, the sub-minimum wages that are um, often even to, to folks with disabilities um, and, and doing work and, and, and for people under the age of 20. And so the final real important part of this legislation that's got to be included in any attempt at raising minimum wage, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level, is that it needs to be indexed um, to some form of measurement of, of inflation and consumer prices so that we don't have to have this big drawn-out political battle um, every 10 years that's going to last five years to get it done um, when we need to raise the minimum wage. The minimum wage just needs to automatically go up every year and, and keep pace with what folks are having to spend their money on. Right. Absolutely. Um, the other thing, just thinking about at this moment, so many folks who are working at or near the minimum wage are falling into two categories they're they're either now out of work so the the small wages that they were scraping by on are gone or they've been deemed uh essential by their state 
and are working at these low wages with all the risks that they have, often without adequate health care uh, and, and protections and so forth. And so I think moving forward, not only do we need to con- continue to fight for uh, the Raise the Wage Act, but, uh, you know, make sure that this this gets done and it, it's a part of our equation as far to as far as the new normal uh, economic security and so forth, sort of the base wages for folks going ahead. Speaking of healthcare, um, uh, our next topic, uh, which which you teed up on April 5th, was uh, Medicare for all. Yeah, so this is, this is another uh, ADA favorite. I believe we've had uh, physicians supporting some type of universal healthcare uh, program for our entire existence since our founding in 1947, uh, but then explicitly advocating for, for Medicare for all since, since the early 70s, so over 40 years of, of fighting and organizing around just the, the simple principle of doing what's done in so many other um, nations across the world, and that is uh, treating healthcare as, as a human right, not as a commodity to, to make money off of, and just moving to a, a system where we um, take out the middleman, which is the big insurance companies uh, that get in the way and um, make it a much more expensive system because you've got to deal with um, complex billing departments. You've got to deal with all the marketing money that they spend. And this would be having Medicare, which is a widely popular program, become the sort of called insurance payer for all Americans. And so that um, it, it really simplifies it and the, that simplification uh, increases savings and um, moves us into uh, a healthcare system that's much more based on um, keeping people healthy and getting people healthy uh, rather than profiting off of the number of services provided. And so it's a really, you know, a number of things that need to to change uh, in healthcare, but when you think about have a Medicare expanded, Medicare Plus for everyone, um, that's got dental coverage, that's got eye vision coverage, uh, that that gets rid of deductibles and premiums, uh, and instead just guarantees you that as as somebody here in this country, you have access to healthcare, no matter what your job is, uh, no matter what uh, position in life you're born into. Right. So very important um uh, along those lines um I, I know that you had a discussion with uh ada uh that that we know well logan buckley who's working with one of our partners alliance for retired americans which is a conglomerate of union retirees uh active on a range of issues we're active ada's partner with them here in in, in Washington, D.C. and other places around the country, and now in, in Iowa, you, you were joined by Logan to discuss prescription drugs on April 13th. Yes, and so this is um, a critical component of, of healthcare reform. Whether you're talking about a Medicare for All-like system that, that Americans' democratic action advocates for, or even if it's you're moving to or it's a system of, of just simply adding a public option to the already existing um, uh, Affordable Care Act. Something that has to happen no matter what direction you go is to make prescription drug costs um, more affordable. And so uh, a number of you know, things that, that must be done is allow for the ne- 
allow for Medicare and and um, other government programs to be able to negotiate over the price of these prescription drugs, as is done by the VA already. Uh, when the Medicare Part D was was added to to Medicare, now this was the uh, prescription drug plan. On one hand, it was good that we were finally going to have a program that was including and addressing prescription drugs and coverage for them. But as to be expected in the Bush administration, this this piece of legislation was largely written by the pharmaceutical industry. And so you had all sorts of crazy things in there, like the preventing of Medicare to negotiate over drug price. You had the donut hole, which has sort of finally been phased out, but not really still exist a little bit. Um, whereas people would reach have a coverage limit, and then they'd fall into this donut hole, and then they had no coverage uh, at all. Um, but but the simple fact is is that because um, pharmaceutical companies spend uh, millions and millions of dollars on marketing their products, uh, they hold on to these monopolies uh, for as strong as they can. They monopolize patents and and, and just do really everything they can to to profit off of medicine that healthcare professionals have decided you need um, to live your quality of life. And it just it forces people into tough choices of paying for the prescriptions that they have or having enough food to eat. Um, you see seniors forced into um, taking out uh, reverse mortgages. Um, you know, in this country, your home is supposed to be um, that that one spot where you're able to put your wealth in and, and accumulate your wealth throughout your lifetime. And here people are in, in their final years and even final decades, you know, of having to put up everything that they work for on the line uh, just to have the prescription drugs uh, that they need to, to live a, a healthy uh, life. Hey, Chris, you're, you're talking about, and rightfully so, um, the prescription drug manufacturers and companies and so forth. And, you know, I, I, it's hard not to think about the potential damage that that can do uh, certainly and has been doing, but as we're hoping and, and looking towards what the future looks like uh, with COVID-19 um, we just absolutely cannot have the health and safety of our you know, entire population um, be run through, you know, whether it's vaccines or treatments, run through this sort of profit above people uh, system that we've, you know, unfortunately been living with. So, you know, this is, this is critical in any time and certainly has been up to this point, but, but I, I hope folks can see and are forced to see the, the problems and the, the need for a solution as we, uh, you know, are, are heading towards that, you know, phase of where we're at um, with the current pandemic. Um, thinking about how, you know, we're going to be able to um, engage in uh, democracy, uh, the, the next topic that uh, Chris covered in our fireside chats uh, was is voting by mail. You give us an update or, or run through uh, uh, snippets on that. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
Uh, as with, with all election laws in the United States, we have a big hodgepodge of um, different laws from state to state and even variations at the local level. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a big problem when you're talking about federal elections that we all have a stake, a collective stake in the, in the outcome of. Um, so we, we really need, uh, you know, a federal guarantee that, that folks are going to have the option to vote by mail in this upcoming uh, general election. Uh, here in Iowa, there's been a strong tradition of vote by mail uh, for decades, and it's always been a, a part of our um, get out the vote strategy is encouraging people to, to vote by mail because we know that it's a, a safe and secure way of voting here. And it, it from an organizing standpoint, it helps you uh, ensure that people turned out because now Election Day is no longer just one day. It's it's weeks long. Um, but that that right has been under attack in Iowa over the last couple of years. Um, but they, so they had um, taken steps a couple of legislative sessions ago to shorten the vote by mail um, window here in Iowa. But in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was enough uh, public pressure put on that we extended that period back to uh, the 40 days before the election. And so folks in Iowa are currently voting right now in, in, our, in our Democratic primary. Um, we also got the, the victory that we had the Secretary of State, whom I knew is a Republican, um, uh, who is saying that they have confidence in, in this system. And that's important to note because uh, there's a lot of Republican voices around the country, uh, including the president, that are trying to sow the seeds of doubt in the security of, of voting by mail. And usually when someone's trying to um, get you to doubt a, a form of voting, um, what they're really trying to do is to prevent you from voting. Right. And so here in Iowa, you know, we have a Republican Secretary of State, but we still were able to get them to send out a postage paid absentee ballot request form to every um, registered active voter uh, in Iowa for the primary. And so what we're seeing here locally in, in my own community, um, turnout is expected to be more than double uh, traditionally in a primary election uh, because we have been hammering this message away for so long. And so um, this really should be the, the right that everybody has across the country. Um, we, we've seen with uh, the Supreme Court's uh, decision to uh, gut the Voting Rights Act um, one of those provisions in there was uh, that if polling locations were going to be closed, um, those things had to be okay by, by the federal government. Well, we just saw in this latest primary, even before uh, the, the pandemic broke, um, examples in Texas, close to um, in whether university communities that there were black and brown, um, polling locations were closed down and people were still voting uh, hours after the results had been called for the state uh, because of these new closed polling locations. They were done in areas that they were really uh, hurting those groups. And so with this COVID-19 pandemic, like it's uh, just critically important that we, um, everybody has this right to vote by mail and exercises it. Um, in Iowa, um, people still do have the option to vote early. Um, we, as a local co uh, county here, had to provide still an in-person early voting 
option. Um, but as of today, only eight people have come um, into the, this closed off vestibule of the courthouse because our courthouse is closed to the public and, and voted that way. Uh, whereas nearly 4,000 people have already returned an absentee ballot for the primary. Wow. And that, that's really high turnout. Wow. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is so important. I'm glad to see that there's some sanity <laughs> happening there in Iowa as far as what, what needs to happen uh, above and beyond politics. Uh, you know, tons of other places around the country are going to have their challenges with this. And certainly there are real challenges to to, if you're an elected official uh, ramping, you know, something like this up, that's why, you know, we've called for more funding to help states and, and, and local elected uh, bodies and so forth, um, election bodies to be able to have the, the funds that they need to expand their absentee voting, you know, open that up, um, you know, have the resources they need, if possible, to to move to more, you know, mail voting, uh, vote by mail uh, voting, and also, um you know, make sure that the the in-person voting is is available in a way that's 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 safe for the poll workers and the voters uh, alike. And so, I know that ADA is we're thinking about uh, the work that we're going to do as part of the election, uh, education uh, around this to voters, what their rights are, what their the options are for safely voting is a big part of. The, the education and mobilization phase that, uh, you know, that we're going to be rolling out. I think uh, we're likely to do a segment uh, on a, a future segment with uh, ADA National Field Director uh, Rebecca Griffin uh, to sort of go through some of the things that we're doing on that. But I appreciate you catching us up on the, 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 the basics of what the needs are there. Um, the uh, next section that I wanted to go through with you is on um, essential workers. Um, I believe it was April 26th, uh, the fireside chat that you did on essential workers. Um, can you give us some info on that? Yeah, this, this topic and, and the, the following week, um, which covered the rights of uh, workers in the food chain, uh, really, really linked together. So I think we're going to sure. kind of talk about both at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and so the, the, the basic principle here, and this was put out by uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ro Khanna of, of California, and that was that we need an essential uh, workers' bill of rights. Uh, and the, in this bill of rights, you've got to include um, health and safety protections um, so that all reasonable efforts are put in place to make a workplace uh, safe. Um, you need a, a robust premium compensation uh, for these for these folks, uh, meaning that um, if you're expected to keep showing up for your minimum wage um, job at, at a supermarket and stock shelves, uh, you need to be paid well to do that work. Because yes, we understand how it's, necessary to keep these places open and, and, and getting food into to people's hands. Uh, but the people doing that work need to be paid well, much, much better than they're paid currently. And this is not just take away from the fact that they deserve a living wage, even when there's not a pandemic right going on, but we, we can't pay them these poverty wages while we're relying on them so much. You've got to you know, also protect collective bargaining rights 
Um, as you said earlier, uh, passing a paid sick leave act um, is a critical component of this. Something very uh, important to me is the protection of whistleblowers. Uh, over the last number of weeks, I've been in, embattled in a fight here against uh, giant meat processing uh, company, uh, Tyson Foods Incorporated, uh, which has a, their largest hog um, processing facility is located here in Waterloo, Iowa. This is a facility that processes about 20,000 hogs a day and employs 2,700 people, uh, many of whom are um, refugees from, from Burma uh, or, the, or the Congolese. Uh, as well as um, uh, so a large um, population of, of people who came over here as refugees from, from Bosnia in, in the 90s. And uh, what we're um, finding out, and it is because of the reports of, of employees, is that, uh, and because of things we were seeing in our local clinics here, is that the conditions there were just not safe, and this was um, ready to be a real hotbed um, of COVID-19 here in our community. And it turns out we were right. We, we pled with the company to close. Um, they delayed and delayed and delayed until finally weeks later, they got to the point that they didn't have enough of their workforce showing up um, to continue working. So they did shut down operations uh, for about a week. Um, but at that point, um, employees had already died families left behind orphans. The infection spread um, from those uh, workers um, to other people in their families, and those other people in their families work in supermarkets, they work in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, and it spread directly into all those. And so we had, because of a corporate giant who refused to listen to the pleas of, of local elected officials and local public health officials, um, continue their operations and, and really spread this all throughout my community. And so this county of 133,000 people uh, has um, just under 1,800 confirmed positive cases of COVID-19, 90% uh, of which we link to the outbreak at Tyson's um, meat processing facility. Um, of their workforce of 2,700 people, uh, over 1,000 of them tested positive. Um, and, and so you just see what happens so quickly uh, in, a, in a workforce, in a work environment that is confined and close. Um, and when, when, when things are ignored um, early on, it, it just spreads so, so rapidly. And so that, that's got to be a, a critical part is protecting those whistleblowers to expose this stuff, but ensuring that these uh, safe workplaces exist because um, even though I think there is some terrible judge in Wisconsin this week that said something to the effect that uh, these outbreaks aren't impacting real people or regular people, it's just the folks in meat processing facilities. Well, first of all, their life has as much dignity as, as anybody else's and as much worth as anybody else's. Uh, but secondly, it you, you cannot keep an outbreak of that size confined to, to one facility in your community, uh, no matter what you did do. And 
And so we're, we're still facing the ramifications of that right now um, uh, with, with just how serious the, the outbreak is now in our long-term care facilities uh, because of the inaction of a corporate giant. Oh, gosh. That's, that's tough stuff to hear. And I, I wish I could say I'm, I'm surprised by the actions of corporate America, but I, I am not. Um, certainly need to do everything we can to uh, understand, you know, how to be safe and, you know, particularly those folks that are, that are part of the essential worker groupings uh, are, are safe, not only for themselves and their families, but for, for the communities, um, you know, that they live in. Thanks, Chris. Well, that, that wraps up our updates for the Fireside Chats. Again, we have been joined by Chris Schwartz, uh, ADA Iowa organizer. This is Don Kusler, National Director of Americans for Democratic Action. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Americans for Democratic Action's Lighting the Darkness podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and this is being recorded on Anchor. Hope you'll tune in or download and subscribe. You can also find information about ADA online at adaction.org. Dot org.